This EHIV Review Podcast is presented by DKB Med Radio. This patient is definitely a candidate for PrEP based on her recent STI, cisgender male partner, and quite simply, the fact that she's having sex and asking about PrEP. Her question is a common concern among transgender patients. Does PrEP interact with my gender-affirming hormones? Weight gain and hormone therapy. Welcome to this EHIV Review Podcast. Patient concerns about ART-associated weight gain. Are they evidence-based for transgender women taking gender-affirming hormone therapy? Does PrEP diminish the efficacy of treatment? Do either of these circumstances merit delaying or avoiding PrEP initiation? That's what we're here to talk about today with Dr. Sarah Pereer from the Division of HIV, ID, and Global Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. For Dr. Pereer's disclosures and additional CME information, please go to our website, ehivreview.org, and click on the Volume 6, Issue 8 link. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of EHIV Review. Dr. Pereer, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me today, Bob. Our first learning objective is to explain weight gain as a potential risk of treatment with INSTEs, integrase strand inhibitors, and TAF. That's tenofovir alafenamide fumarate. So start us out in the clinic, if you would please, doctor, with a case scenario. Okay. Well, here we have a 43-year-old African-American woman who was recently diagnosed with HIV and is treatment naive. She has a BMI of 29, classifying her as overweight. She's a non-smoker and has a history of tubal ligation. Her initial labs show a CD4 of 450, hepatitis B immunity, normal creatinine clearance, and a normal non-fasting glucose. Her HLA B5701 and HIV genotype are still pending. She tells you that she wants to start treatment today, but that she is worried about gaining weight. She has heard of and read articles about people with HIV having weight gain with ART and asked for a medication that, quote, won't have those side effects. So ready to start treatment, but she's already overweight and she's worried about gaining more weight on an ART regimen. Do you often encounter situations like this in practice? Yes, this is a very common scenario in clinical practice where we have patients with a new diagnosis, few or no comorbidities who are looking to start therapy but have some concerns and particularly concerns about weight gain. What's your initial approach to patients like this? First and foremost, I start the conversation by hearing about her concerns, but also focusing on the fact that the most important goal with ART is virologic suppression. And the current DHHS guidelines recommend integrase inhibitor-based ART for most people living with HIV, and for good reason. These are highly effective, once-daily regimens that have very few side effects. However, NC-based ART is strongly linked to weight gain, as is TAF, one of our go-to NRTIs. For her, TDF could be considered as an alternative, although it's not available in a single-tablet regimen with first-line integrase inhibitors. So, in talking with this patient, I would counsel her on the potential for weight gain. In this case in particular, we know that her black race, female sex, both have been consistently shown as risk factors for ART-associated weight gain. So it's even more important for this woman that we talk about those risks. The same is true for patients starting therapy with a low CD4, high viral load, or cardiovascular risk factors, particularly our older patients. So these are all patients who I would counsel on potential weight gain risks. Talk to us a little more about your approach to counseling. Well, I would have a candid discussion about the potential for weight gain, especially with NSTs and with TAF. I, in this case, typically review the patient's current diet and lifestyle habits 
and then do extensive counseling on both diet and exercise. If it's appropriate, I refer for nutrition and or weight loss management too. I explain that we'll monitor their weight and if they gain more than either of us is comfortable with, we will reassess. It's important to remember that only a small percentage of patients do gain excessive weight with starting ART. So it is not a reason to skip over using first-line regimens that contain ENSTEs. I would also note that I do all this counseling for all patients, including those who don't have specific concerns about weight or have risk factors that increase the likelihood of weight gain. I couple this counseling with routine screening for other cardiovascular risk factors, including diabetes, hyperlipidemia, and hypertension. So for this particular patient, after counseling, after screening, what potential treatment choices would you consider? Before selecting her regimen, I'd first explore her treatment preferences, particularly how many pills per day she's willing to take. I think she has several reasonable first-line options. BIC, TAF, FTC, or if she's willing to do two pills, Delutegravir with either formulation of tenofovir and imtricitabine. In general, weight gain is probably similar between Delutegravir and Bictegravir, which are my preferred ENSTEs given their relatively high barriers to resistance. While weight gain is greater with ENSTEs compared to PIs or NNRTIs, these are still the first-line regimens and should still be the anchor drugs in this case. In selecting my NRTIs, it's really a decision between TAF and TDF, since we don't have her HLA results. Initiation of TAF in naive patients is associated with greater weight gain than TDF and abacavir. There also appears to be an additive effect when NCs are combined with TAF. So in this case, I'm weighing the bone and kidney advantages of TAF versus the potential lipid and weight advantages of TDF. I'm also thinking about one pill versus two. Given her concerns and following a shared decision-making discussion, let's say she selects Bictegravir, TAF, FTC, because she really wants a single pill. Well, for our discussion, let's assume she starts that regimen, she virally suppresses, but she does have some weight gain. So now we're at her two-year follow-up, and let's say she's gained 30 pounds. Do you change her regimen because of that weight gain? For weight gain alone, no. I do not often change their regimen. But again, this has to be a continued conversation with the patient, and attempts should be made to identify other factors that might be contributing. Reasons I don't switch automatically for weight gain alone, for one, we do not know if the weight gain is reversible or not with switching. There's also limited data on the metabolic impact of the weight gain. Furthermore, you have to balance switch with other potential benefits of the regimen, biologic suppression, lipids, cardiovascular disease, renal, bone benefits, just some examples. That being said, I think it's important to acknowledge some of the things we might consider switching to. I think it's natural to consider two drug regimens or perhaps switching that NC to an NNRTI. We saw in the Tango study that switching to two-drug dolutegravir or 3TC versus continuing three or four-drug TAF-based regimens didn't make a difference in weight gain or metabolic syndrome, though it did decrease odds for insulin resistance and improve lipid profiles. We've also seen some data switching to deraverine TDF-FTC in the DRIVE-SHIFT study, but again, we did see some weight gain, albeit modest, around 1.4 kilos at 144 weeks following switch. There are some limitations in both of these cases, and more data is definitely needed in diverse patient populations. You mentioned there's limited data about the metabolic impact of her ART-associated weight gain. What do we know about her cardiometabolic risks? There does appear to be an increased risk of metabolic syndrome with dolutegravir, particularly when it's paired with TAF. We saw this in the ADVANCE trial, that most of the weight gain with dolutegravir for women is fat gain, both 
in the trunk and the limbs. This was increased further when dolutegravir was combined with TAF. In particular, by week 96, we saw a much higher rate of treatment, emergent metabolic syndrome, for patients started on dolutegravir TAF-FTC compared to a Favarin's TDF-FTC. I think the jury is still out on INSTEs and diabetes risk. We've seen some mixed results on this, and so I think the best thing we can do with the evidence right now is to continue with regular diabetes screening and address this on a case-by-case basis. Lastly, there's still a lot of unknowns surrounding this phenomenon of NCDs, TAF, and weight gain. We don't know the mechanism, how to prevent it, the reversibility, or the risk of diabetes. Thank you for that case and discussion, doctor. Let's wrap things up now by returning to our learning objective, weight gain as a potential risk of treatment with an NCD and TAF. What are the key things our listeners should remember? First, there's accumulating data that INSTE and TAF-based regimens are associated with greater weight gain than other regimens. Second, the increases in weight on dolutegravir are higher in women and Black individuals. Third, people living with HIV who do experience higher weight gain on dolutegravir TAF-FTC, as seen in the advanced study, may be at a higher risk of developing metabolic syndrome. Fourth, I would say based on efficacy and tolerability, INSTEs and TAF remain guideline-recommended components of initial therapy. And lastly, proactive and continued counseling with patients to address lifestyle factors associated with weight gain are essential. Thank you, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Sarah Pereira from the University of California, San Francisco, in just a moment. COVID-19. How is the pandemic affecting people living with HIV? Is there increased susceptibility in this population? Does HIV infection increase the chances of more severe disease? Or is it possible that art adherence may be protective and might even reduce disease severity? What does the evidence say? And how is the pandemic affecting frontline practitioners in their clinics? That's the focus of EHIV Review's special edition, HIV and COVID-19, The Data and the Real World. It's where EHIV Review Program Director, Dr. Matthew Spinelli, from the University of California, San Francisco, analyzes the most important current literature, and where he speaks directly with frontline clinicians as they navigate a disrupted healthcare system. To access HIV and COVID-19, the data in the real world, click on the COVID-19 Special Edition link at ehivreview.org. Welcome back to our EHIV Review Podcast. We've been talking with Dr. Sarah Pereira. She's from the Division of HIV, ID, and Global Medicine at UCSF about the risk of weight gain treating with INSTEs plus TAF. Let's go to our second learning objective now, the potential risks of drug-drug interactions between PrEP and gender-affirming hormone therapy in transgender patients. Uh, So if you would, please, doctor, take us back to the clinic with another patient scenario. A 28-year-old transgender woman presents to your clinic. She is sexually active with cisgender men and has had one new sexual partner in the past month. She reports receptive and insertive anal sex with occasional condom use. She has a history of rectal gonorrhea three months ago. She has been taking oral estradiol and spironolactone for five years and has not had any gender-affirming surgeries. She is interested in PrEP but is worried about starting it because her friends told her it will interact with her hormones. Baseline labs are obtained. She is HIV negative by antigen antibody and viral load, hepatitis B immune, hepatitis C antibody negative, and has normal renal function. 28 years old, HIV negative transgender woman who is interested in PrEP but worried about drug-drug interactions, particularly with her hormone therapy. 
Question one, doctor. Do you consider this patient a candidate for PrEP? First, this patient is definitely a candidate for PrEP based on her recent STI, cisgender male partner, and quite simply, the fact that she's having sex and asking about PrEP. Her question is a common concern among transgender patients. Does PrEP interact with my gender-affirming hormones? And really, this is a two-part question. Does PrEP lower hormone therapy levels? And do gender-affirming hormones affect PrEP levels or make it less effective? So let's start with the first question. Does PrEP lower gender-affirming hormone therapy levels for transgender women? The simple answer here is no. There's no evidence that FTDF PrEP affects estrogen levels when co-administered. I would say that transgender women can feel confident taking FTDF PrEP without fear that it might impact their hormone levels. Several recent studies looking at FTDF PrEP have informed this. The 2019 IFACT study found that among 20 Thai HIV-negative trans women, estradiol levels were not affected by PrEP. Two additional studies, which are discussed in my newsletter, provided further evidence supporting this. Concerns about PrEP affecting hormone therapy can be a major barrier to PrEP uptake and adherence among our trans patients. Whether patients ask this outright or not, it's really important to counsel on and make sure that she knows there is no impact on hormones. As you've laid it out here, the evidence is pretty consistent that PrEP does not affect gender-affirming hormone levels for transgender women. But what about the reverse? Does hormone-affirming therapies affect PrEP levels? The answer to this question is a little bit more complicated. The first hint we had that there might be a drug-drug interaction came from IPREX, the large multinational study that resulted in approval of FTDF as PrEP. Among the 2,499 participants in IPREX, a subsequent sub-analysis identified 339 trans women. They found that among these trans women, there was no effectiveness of PrEP on an intention-to-treat basis. However, adherence in the group was only 18%. And among those who did have TDF levels consistent with four times per week dosing, there were no HIV seroconversions, suggesting that PrEP is effective in preventing HIV in transgender women. But they did see that tenofovir levels were lower if on gender-affirming hormone therapy. So the question from this was, did lower tenofovir levels occur because of adherence or because of drug-drug interactions? Since that time, we've had several studies that have explored this more. I think the most elegant study, which I mentioned earlier, was the IFAC study out of Thailand. The big takeaway was that they found that trans women's tenofovir levels when on hormones were 13 to 17% lower. Other studies have been mixed, which we discuss in greater detail in my newsletter. So to answer your question, does hormone therapy affect PrEP for transgender women? I think the answer is maybe. We have some evidence for a reduction in tenofovir levels when co-administered with gender-affirming estrogen, but the clinical significance is unclear. I think the big takeaway is that adherence is really important, particularly because there might be a slight reduction in PrEP levels, so taking it every day is important. Let's go back to our patient. She's eager to start PrEP, but she's concerned about interactions with her hormone therapy. What's her best option? I think the best option in this case is daily-dosed FTDF PrEP as part of a prevention package. We have the most evidence for this regimen and this dosing schedule for our patient. The current CDC guidelines are based on FTDF and recommend it for all persons at risk of acquiring HIV sexually, including trans people. What about event-based dosing? Is that an option? I do not recommend event-based dosing, sometimes called 211, for these patients. It is not currently FDA-approved in the U.S., and the studies were done in cisgender men who have sex with men. 
Also, the participants in that trial had frequent sex, making it nearly daily dosing. Because of the concerns we discussed around potential drug-drug interactions, I feel less comfortable telling our patient that she'll be protected with event-based dosing. It also note that, assuming I don't have any concerns over bone health or renal dysfunction, I do typically stick with FTDF prep in this kind of case. We do have some recent data, though, on FTAF from the DISCOVER trial that was presented at CROI in 2020 that didn't show a reduction in tenofovir levels among trans women taking FTAF. In my opinion, I don't expect to see major differences between the formulations in terms of drug-drug interactions. However, if I had reasons to use FTAF, I would do that over not using PrEP at all. Thank you for bringing us this case, Dr. Pereer, and for sharing your insight and expertise in discussing it. Let's wrap things up now by returning to our learning objective. Describe the potential risks of drug-drug interactions between PrEP and gender-affirming hormone therapy in transgender patients. What are the most important things our listeners should take away from our discussion? First, PrEP is indicated for individuals who are at risk of sexual transmission of HIV, including trans people. Second, evidence suggests that PrEP effectively prevents HIV in transgender women when they take PrEP as prescribed. Third, there are no known drug-drug interactions between FTDF PrEP and gender-affirming hormone therapy for trans women. Fourth, gender-affirming hormone therapy may lower levels of tenofovir when co-administered with PrEP. However, the clinical significance is unknown. And lastly, FTDF PrEP should be dosed daily in at-risk transgender patients as part of a comprehensive HIV prevention package. From the Division of HIV, ID, and Global Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, Dr. Sarah Pereer, thank you for participating in this eHIV Review podcast. Thank you so much for having me. For eHIV Review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at ehiv.dkpmed.com. EHIV Review is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated, Janssen, and Merck & Company Incorporated. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. EHIV Review is copyright, with all rights reserved, by DKB Med, LLC. Thank you for listening. <laughs>